Romario, Ronaldinho, Rafael Scheidt, we all have our favourite Brazilian players. Well, get ready to meet your new Celestial hero, or should that be anti-hero? Carlos Kaiser is a legend in Brazil for having had a 20-year career, including spells at all the top Rio clubs without actually kicking a ball for them. See, Kaiser lived the life of a professional footballer, all without doing the actual athletic bit. How did he get away with it? Well, he's the subject of a new documentary called Kaiser, the greatest footballer never to play football, and it just so happens that our friend Dr. Tom Markham is one of the producers of the film. He stopped by the Totally Studios to speak to Ian McIntosh, along with his fellow producer Rob Fulham and the film's director Louis Miles, who you'll hear from first. We started off with the premise of his... Here's this guy. He's he's managed to flag this 26-year career. Um, let's go meet him. And then the, I think the first the first trip we, we met him, we, we'd hired a flat overlooking Botafogo Bay. Um, and Tom had actually bought a, a, a bottle of whiskey at the airport, thinking, oh, he's going to love this. This is the bad boy of football and all the rest of it. It's all kind of lads. This is what he's going to be into. And the guy sort of, we didn't even know we were going to meet him, right? We, we assumed that we could find him. Tom had, had his connections of Brazilian football. So we didn't even know we were going to meet him, right? And then after a couple of days, we did. Tom got the beers. We got the beers going, the choppies going, all the rest of it, and the, and, and the whiskey's ready. And he sort of hobbles in, obviously, and we're assuming he's faking an injury, but I think he actually does have a, a hip problem. Um, and then he just announces, no, I've never drunk in my life. And right. so you're sitting there going, okay, well, how does this work? Well, why would you why would you want to live that lifestyle if you weren't going to be, you know, having the parties alongside it? Well, he, he certainly had the parties, though, didn't he? Oh, and, yeah, he definitely well, did. And what but he lacked in that vice, he no, made up no. elsewhere. Well, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we can't. Say. I mean, that first that first thing before we signed any contracts with him. I mean, he was telling all these all these incredible stories that uh, you, you can't can't really broadcast because you need to um, you, you need, need to somehow, up, you need to, you yeah. need to, this huge lawyer and he said is this a drama or a documentary it's like well we, I guess we're going to do a documentary thing as this is so good and he goes well he can't use any of that then um, you know contract sign all the rest of it and then we started arranging interviews around it and the first three days were like dodgy doctors in, in the middle of Lapa outside nightclubs and on day two we were in a, a, a brothel in Rio de Janeiro with a transgender gender funk singer who was claiming she'd never had sexual relations with Kaiser. That was a fantastic interview. It's a shame we didn't put it in the film, really. Um, so let's um, um, but anyway, but like, so, so the first sort of three days were kind of like meeting these sort of characters and you're thinking, and you, if you've, no one's ever been to Brazil, there's, there's not really a formal culture there. Like you watch TV and everyone's in shorts and T-shirts. So you can't really work out who's like really professional and who's not. And then after about three days, you think, oh, well, we've, we've kind of, he's kind of having us on here. He's told this amazing story of people have bought into it. And, oh, well, there you go. And then Carlos Alberto Torres um, agreed to do an interview. And yeah, over a, over a 40-minute interview, he, he basically just says, yeah, I took him to Flamengo. Remind us, uh, for, for those of uh, th- those listeners who don't know, Carlos Alberto Torres is? He, he was the captain of the 1970 World Cup squad and the score of what's claimed to be the greatest ever goal of all time, right? And it's in even, every single montage and every single World Cup. And uh, even he fell all. for it. Well, no, not only did he fall for it, he became one of Kaiser's very good friends. So when when he passed, sadly passed away a, a year and a half ago, Kaiser was one of the very few select people at his funeral. Um, there's several photos of the, those guys having a really good night out uh, and, and became very close personal friends. So... That was a complete game changer, that interview, because then you're like, okay, well, there's substance to this story. Um, and you're saying, well, but why would he take him to Flamengo? And why would why would anyone permit this this sort of character? 
and then you have to go on from there really so we, we, every every as i say every trip we went it was like right okay well we need to find some other famous people and then you get the beto and then you you get hikado hosha from then uh, the right back in 1994 and um and then all of a sudden you've got um you know broadcasting leg- legends in brazil so the equivalent of des Lynham and john motson coming on and talking about him and then all of a sudden you realize that this character really did exist and was sort of aided and abetted by some of the greatest people ever to play the game. And this is one of the most extraordinary things about the story because it brings to mind that guy at Southampton who managed to wangle sort of 15 minutes on the pitch under Graham Sooners. But he did that by virtue of an injury crisis and a cancelled reserve team fixture and just desperation on the part of the manager. But this, this is basically that story but stretched over nearly two decades. How did it start, Tom, and how did it continue for so long? That's a very good question. In terms of... There's varying uh, suggestions as to how it started. So Kaiser himself will tell you that he was an extremely good footballer and was picked up and, and brought into the the Botafogo Academy originally and got a move quickly to, to Puebla in, in Mexico and ultimately came back to Brazil in, in that route. Whereas... That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it is obviously the connections that that Louis mentioned that he managed to build up. This guy became sort of part of the Rio elite. He he was he was a socialite, so he knew all of the best bars, nightclubs, restaurants. He associated with um, pop stars, with politicians, with you know mafia bosses, with footballers, and footballers were his currency. He knew them all. So all of the biggest names from the 70 team that Louis mentioned right on to the, the World Cup winning team in 94, these were Kaiser's cronies. Rob, he met and became close friends with some of the biggest names of that time, like Renato Gaucho. Yeah, he certainly did. And uh, bizarrely, he um, he ended up becoming such good friends with Renato Gaucho by impersonating him originally. So Kaiser decided to grow his hair long into a mullet form like uh, Renato Gaucho did. And obviously Renato Gaucho was quite a, a famous ladies man in Rio and in Brazil, in fact, at that time. Kaiser obviously wanted a slice of the action, so decided to style himself as closely to Renato Gaucho as possible. This included turning up at nightclubs pretending to be Renato Gaucho, going on dates with girls pretending to be Renato Gaucho, until Renato Gaucho found out about this and uh, <laughs> and heard a few stories maybe going back to his wife saying that you've been out in this nightclub, you've been in this bar, you've been with this woman, but turned out it was Kaiser all along. <laughs> Renato Gaucho, of course, isn't just another Brazilian footballer. Again, for, for those people not so familiar with, uh, with this side of the game, Louis? Yeah, I mean, so I think for... for um, a European audience, and unless you're a Roma fan, you probably wouldn't have heard of him. Um, he he had one failed year at Roma, sort of late. I think it was eighty nine, maybe ninety. Um, didn't really do much. But Renato uh, in Brazil is is the Brazilian Beckham. Um, he is big, big, big news. So he he came uh, to the fore as a very powerful attacker uh, playing for Grêmio. Um, and absolutely dominated the Brazilian championship. And the reason why he was so good is that he was a very physical player um, at a time where, you, you, if you look at 82 squad, they had a lot of artists in their team. You think of Socrates and uh, Zico and, and all of these very nimble players. But you, if you remember Socrates playing, I mean, he kind of played at a half pace and could just pick out these balls. He was incredible. Renato was 
ahead of his time for Brazilian footballer because he was fit, he was strong, he was skillful, um, and uh, he he knew where the goal was. So he quickly became the best player in the, in in the Brazilian Championship. Um, should have made the 1986 World Cup squad, didn't because uh, he went out on a a night out with Leonardo uh, and um, Santana at the time. He he um, he kicked him out the the squad. But he became such a big star in Brazil um, that he was on all the soap operas. He'd, he'd have little acting roles. He would be um, main guests on huge popular entertainment shows. Um, and he was on the front cover of every newspaper almost weekly. And, and what uh, really comes across is uh, his, his class and his dignity. Where he finds out that this charlatan's running around mm, pretending to be him and mm. getting his end away all over the place and getting him in trouble with his wife. And, um, and and then when he actually meets him, he's just like, well, he's not hurting anyone. And then they become friends. Yeah, they become really good friends and and, and are, are best friends now. Um, so um, and, and Renato Gaucho could be going on to bigger things, couldn't he? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Renato had a, a, a fantastic career within the Brazilian um, league sort of structure uh, and did well with Brazil as well um, um, in, in Copa Americas and, and sort of tournaments within the Americas. Um but he, yeah, he played for Flamengo, Fluminense, um, and just had this fantastic career. Now as a manager, um, and like most Brazilian managers, they sort of last sort of three months here, six months there. But recently he's been at Grêmio again and won the Copa Libertadores, uh, which he also won as a player with, with Grêmio. And he's the first uh, person ever to win both at the same club. Uh, and actually as a player or a manager. Yeah, I think he's, he's the only person in South America who's done that, who's, yeah. who's won it as a player and as a manager. And the other thing, you, you were talking about classy, and um, I really like the fact that he always wore a headband. And he'd have, he was sort of... <laughs> was that classy? He was a sexed up uh, Pat Sharp at, at the time. <laughs> that, that was the sort of look that we were looking at. And he'd have that the old WWF sort of sunglasses and a little pair of Speedos. But he would wear this headband and emblazoned across the headband was poor cow. And for, for any listeners who, who've been to Rio or are familiar with Rio, poor cow is a now defunct uh, steakhouse. And the first time I ever went to poor cow and Rob was there at the time, uh, we went in and there was a picture of uh, Ronaldo, let's just say, at his plumpest. Ooh. And that was an advertisement for the restaurant. It was a lifestyle. <laughs> you were greeted by a life-size picture of Ronaldo as to say, come in, all you can eat. <laughs> there is, Rob, there are some amazing people in this documentary. Um, and almost no one has a bad word to say about this charlatan who essentially just ran around pretending to be something he wasn't and getting everyone laid. With the exception of Zico. Zico is the only person who's not got any time for this, isn't he? That's right. And I think there was a period where we were talking about it and saying it, maybe Zico's the only guy that he doesn't have some dirt on. But it turns out that Zico was such a professional, obviously the consummate professional, he played over in Italy and was very successful over there, that he saw Kaiser as an affront to the profession of being a footballer. So he thought that this, you know, how could a character like this exist in what was supposed to be such a professional environment? Whereas if you speak to anyone else, it wasn't really a professional environment. It was guys, you know, that were out there enjoying themselves, going to the beach, partying and having a very nice time. I think that's the thing about the whole, um, what we had to do as uh, sort of British and Irish people going over is take yourself out of this sort of very modern 
professional world of football and and sort of insert yourself into 1980s Rio de Janeiro, which is, you know, a stunning place, but the whole culture uh, revolves around the beach. You know, it's for footballers, it's training and then it's it's straight off to the beach and they'd often have a couple of beers and just enjoy themselves. Um, and it was a slightly less professional time, I, yeah, I it think. Was it's slightly. It, it was the last golden era and this is something we were discussing just before we came on air. On air and Rob made the point that this was the last golden era of domestic Brazilian football. The players weren't necessarily moving to Europe. You mentioned Zico did. Obviously, the the very biggest names were moving, but all of the best players were pretty much still in Brazil. They didn't have to train that much. They had an amazing lifestyle. It wasn't they could go and speak to people. So you, you had it was a very 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 romantic era, and it, it's probably worth mentioning the the King of Rio. Well, yeah, the, well, just even speaking about Renato Gaúcho, obviously he went over to Roma. I think he lasted a season. But I'd say a large part of that was that he obviously missed life over in Rio. You know, he was able to get away with whatever he wanted over there. He obviously had the beach on the doorstep, girls throwing themselves at him. Whereas obviously in Roma, he was probably in a fairly professional environment that would have been quite strict. But uh, as Tom mentioned there, the, the king of Rio was a competition in the uh, in the Campeonato Carioca, which is basically the Rio State Championship. You had Romario, Tulio and Renato Gaucho all going for top goal scorer in the tournament that year. So the, the competition was obviously fairly intense, three very good players, and it was dominated in the media all the time. You'd be, every new, newspaper article you'd pick up would be about who is the King of Rio. Eventually, it came down to the very last game, which was Flamengo-Fluminense, which were obviously a massive rivalry, and Renato Gaucho managed to become the King of Rio by scoring a goal with his belly. <laughs> nice. And, and this is a Flamengo legend who scored the winning goal. Still wearing that poor cow headband, he managed to score the winner, as Rob said, with his belly uh, for Fluminense against Flamengo. And he was obviously a Flamengo legend. And that was the only time, actually, when we did the Zico interview that Zico got really, really irate was when we mentioned this goal and what it meant to him. He was obviously pretty irate about Kaiser and everything he did, but he was still trying to claim to this day that that belly goal was scored with Renato's hand. (laughs) And I think the thing is about that time as well is that 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 happened just after the 1994 World Cup. So Romario's coming back to Rio de Janeiro as the best player in the world. Um, So everyone's very excited about that. And it's, uh, again, a very romantic very romantic time for for Rio football. Now, the great thing about this film is that it it is partly a football film, but it also feels more like a, a sort of caper. And and there's one bit where it actually feels like Donny Brasco, where he's in the restaurant and he has to take his boots off and he doesn't want to reveal that he's wired. And this is a bit where um, where, where the Kaiser absolutely has to play in this one game and the owner's there and the owner is of course a crime lord and he's watching and Tom pick up the story from there what what happens yeah so there was a small team called Bangu it was actually that this Bangu was the first place in Brazil where a football match was played and it was owned at the time by a mafia boss called uh, Castor de Andrade and Castor absolutely loved Kaiser Kaiser was such a charismatic guy he really liked him so he had him at the club but I think he was just getting a little bit tired at this point that Kaiser was uh, more injured than Kieran Dyer and Darren Anderton put together. So this day he turns up and he says to the coach, I want Kaiser to play. So Ka- uh, the coach at the time decides 
that he's going to ring Kaiser, but he couldn't find Kaiser. And he eventually tracks him down to his favourite nightclub uh, at 4am to tell him that he's on the bench the next day. <laughs> but he, he promises Kaiser that he was only going to be on the bench, that he wasn't going to play. So Kaiser's obviously giving him lots of of Kaiser chat saying, uh, you know, I can't play unless I'm fully fit. I'm not ready for this, etc. So... Eventually, this mafia boss, they're 2-0 down, and he decides that Kaiser has to go on, and he's got a walkie-talkie to the bench, a little bit like Queen's Park Rangers a few years ago. <laughs> and <laughs> Kaiser warms up, and he, he, he's just thinking through his head, I'm, I'm finished, what am I going to do here? And he decides that uh, there's only one thing for it, is to jump over the fence and to start a, fa- or to start, start a fight with a fan. And he so obviously he gets sent off before he has to go onto the pitch. And then he's he's back in the dressing room, and down comes the crime lord owner. And this is it. It's not even just a case of the Kaiser getting sacked, Rob. It's it's a case of maybe he's going to get actually shot. Oh, absolutely. But yeah. how does he get away with it? Well, it's, as you said, it's it's almost life or death for him here. If he came onto the pitch, then the gig would have been up. He would have realised how bad a player he was. But if he refused to come on, he was in massive trouble anyway. So we saw this as his only route out. Castor de Andrade has come in with his heavies into the dressing room. Obviously, all the players are looking around saying, this is it, you're dead, what have you done here? And before Castor can say anything, he says, Doctor, one word. He said, since I've come to this club, you've been like a second father for me. As you know, when I was younger, my father passed away when I was quite young. You know, I heard them saying things about you there while I was warming up, that you were a crook, you are a criminal, that you are a drug dealer. I just couldn't take it. My blood was boiling. I had to jump in and defend your honour. <laughs> Castor kind of stares at him. There's, you know, a little bit of silence. Obviously, massive tension must have been in the room at that time and kind of smiles, hugs him, says six months more on the contract, double the salary. Outstanding. And this this is his career all over. Louis, you, you haven't exactly made the typical football documentary here, being that it's full of orgies and mafia bosses and in one case, a quite impressive prosthetic penis. Um, what, what was your favourite bit? I think the best bit for me in sort of the whole filming, and I th- hope it comes across as the film, is um, is kind of the journey of discovery that we went on to get more and more of these stories. So the way we did the interviews was... Um, Obviously, I did the interviews, but we had a guy called Eddie uh, who was our translator, and he was amazing because he would live translate. He would hear like a, a, and no one ever gave a short answer in Brazil, right? No, no. It, yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't your typical footballer interview where it's like, oh yeah, the, you know, the boss said play well this weekend and all this sort of stuff. But he, every everything was like two three minutes long, and he would relay it back. But quite often, Eddie would be on the floor laughing. I mean, like literally rolling around, and there'd be <laughs> tears coming out their eyes, and you're thinking, well, what's what's Kaiser been up to now? And um, at every, uh, he'd then relay it back, and we'd do the same. And 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 you'd you'd hear him. You'd say, "Well, okay, well, he was definitely at Flamengo because we know that Carlos Alberto said that." And then it was like, "Well, that Bangu story definitely happened because there's lots of people telling the same thing, and it all works." And then you'd hear stories about him in Vasco, Vasco da Gama, where um, he um, they get so fed up with him being injured that they bring along a black magic priest to come mm. and like work his spells on him. Um, and it, and then you're on the floor hearing that. And Bebeto, I mean, Bebeto was in bits. I mean, he was literally on the floor. With <laughs> Bebeto basically <laughs> spends the entire film laughing. He does, yeah, because it's just... And, and Kaiser would just come across with all of these ways not to get onto the football pitch, but then... Uh, all of these, and then then all of these other stories as well. That that you know, half of them which we couldn't put in the film because you get legally challenged, and it, you know, sort of sleeping with Brazil's <laughs> most famous singer. 
you know, still currently in Brazil's most famous singer, and how he can, how he manages to conduct that affair. My favourite bit of the whole thing was uh, Louis thought he'd figured out the whole story. So this is one of our last filming trips, and we were in the house that the crew all stayed in in Gavia, and he burst into my bedroom at about quarter past seven in the morning, and he said, "I figured it out." He was never a player. He was never at any of these clubs. You know, he's a fantastic con man. And so he's going through line by line because for all of us, it, and as Louis said, it was such a journey. And every day your head was been turned and twisted. It was it was incredible. And anyway, later that day, we met a, a friend of mine who works for the, the CBF. And we'd asked him to check out whether he was registered. And he came along with all his registrations. And it was the same day that Louis said, yeah, I've figured it out. He was never a player. And then we had his registrations there. But, I mean, to pick up what Tom was saying there, uh, we genuinely sort of went into this going, well, we we know that he's he's being marketed as football's greatest con man and football's greatest liar. Some of this can't be true. Um, so each interview you're trying to probe and find out and trying to draw the dots of where he, he was at any one point. Kaiser never gave a timeline at any point. It was always, uh, it was always, well, when I was at Flamengo or when I was at, at Botafogo or when I was doing this. And then you, you, whenever you tried to get like, look, just give me dates, you'd never do it. Um, and then, and then, then you'd always question it and you think, well, that, that can't be right. And well, how does this, all this work? And then you'd go meet someone you know, a player who says, no, he was definitely here from this date to this date. So Botafogo, he was at Botafogo for five years as a professional player uh, between 88 and 92. And the person telling us that is the Botafogo manager at the time, right? The guy who won the first league title for them for, for 25 years and saying, no, he was here. This is what happened. Your head's getting completely busted every single trip because his timeline doesn't marry up with someone else's timeline saying, well, no, he was at Vasco da Gama at that exact time you're saying well he can't be at both places but then it turned out he probably was he was he was kind of at Botafogo like Monday to Wednesday and then <laughs> then like popping over to somewhere else um taking the money from both um organizing all the parties and 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 doing absolutely you know everything to maintain this sort of um life as a professional footballer and and look i mean he, he was also in every sort of newspaper as well you would get these newspaper clippings and there'll be like articles on the famous carlos kaiser and you know he's looking for a new club or he's a botafogo player or the rest of it and then we got there was one trip where we just got all these old vhs's and then all of a sudden kaiser's a tv presenter of a football show in <laughs> rio de janeiro and then popping up on the brazilian version of match of the day giving analysis of like goals that have been scored that weekend and the thing is um, that he's obviously a very very convincing guy and you know he convinced us of, a, of you know a million different things we ended up in one situation over there where for a period, we were very seriously considering representing and promoting, at the behest of Kaiser, his girlfriend, as she went on the European bodybuilding circuit. There was always a danger that this film could sort of spin off into being like a loaded lads, oi oi, wahey kind of uh, story of debauchery, but it doesn't. And I don't want to give away too much, but it turns very, very dramatically and unexpectedly. At the end of the film, he takes his sunglasses off for the first time and he says, I'm here, I'm ready to be judged. So how do you judge him? I think during the period of filming, I, I think we... Tom had a very different approach 
to what I did. And I, I think this this film is very much a team effort because there's the two camera guys, DOPs, Will Billany and Steve Middleditch, we had to discuss everything every day because there was so much information coming at you and you knew some of them were lies and all the rest that you were really trying to pick it all out. And he was presenting himself as this sort of big sort of character around Rio, uh, highly sexually charged figure. But at the same time, you know, he's he's a lot older now. Um, I guess you could look at him a little bit like a, a Brazilian Paul Gascoigne without the booze, but in terms of Gaza looks very different to what he was in his, in his heyday. And Tom, I think, loved him all the way through. Um, whereas the two camera guys, uh, Will's not particularly into football and not particularly into the, uh, well, I don't think any of us are into misogyny or, or, or one of those sort of things, but I think he found it particularly disgusting. So you're having these these really big debates all the time. And I sort of took a middle ground with him um, in terms of, I could tell he's trying to play us. And so when you put yourself as a storyteller in that in that position of, right, okay, your main person is trying to control the narrative that is a, a red rag to a ball to me because it's kind of like, well, no, you you know, this is a documentary. You can't just present this side. So you at the same time, you're trying to, to work out what is truth. Um, and you're uh, from him and all the contributors that you're getting. Now, it came to a point where we thought that anyone that he set up for us, which included some big names, were probably being told to tell the gospel of Kaiser. So we... Uh, started you know putting our journalists out on trying to find people that could come on camera and sort of give an alternative view which is very hard to do especially when you would go and find someone to go and interview yourself and then go and interview him without kaiser's knowledge and then he would phone you up two minutes before the interview saying why are you interviewing this guy and he would know and that included when we flew up to Manaus to go and meet a, a former Flamengo player, completely off map, I, uh, and he shouldn't have known anything about it. And then he found me in Manaus, said, what are you doing in Manaus? He certainly made a lot of friends um, over the years. Oh, absolutely. So he was being told everything. So when, so when you go through that whole narrative, that's how you kind of get uh, a deeper side to the story, because then you're suddenly not, you, you're challenging, you're pushing back. So in answer to your, your entire question, what do I make of him now? I think, you know, a year on from finishing filming, I think you, you kind of have to look at the context of it all as well, which is Brazil's a very hard place to live. It's beautiful, it's wonderful, the people are so warm, but there is a huge inequality in the whole society. It's very rich or very poor. There's not much of a middle class. Um, and Kaiser has managed to live a fantastic life by creating... Essentially, a character that that could live live in this world and convince people to let him live in in that world as well, and I think that that involves a, a remarkable amount of talent. Um, and in another life, he probably would have been a football agent or a marketeer or something. You know, his intelligence is is off the scale. But at that point, he was fighting to do what he knew best, which was be a pretend footballer which is um completely remarkable when you think about it and that's what is engaging about the story on a, on a different level from this lad stuff that you were speaking about there it's it's it is deeper it, it is why does why does someone have to do this tom it feels like the film is essentially a kind of uh, swinging scale between lovable rogue and pitiable wretch um and uh, where, where did you end up on that scale I have a lot of respect for Kaiser for, for what he's achieved because, you know, to have over 20 years uh, of a CV as a professional footballer when you can't really play is just absolutely ridiculous. You know, you look at Frank Abagnale Jr. 
I'm not being funny, but any of us in this room could get a pilot's outfit that we could fit into and pretend we're a pilot for a day. But as you said, with with the reference to Ali Dia, who who did it for, you know, for a few minutes in a game, to do it for the, the entirety and to reinvent himself. The thing is now... He's he's fifty five years of age. He's a personal trainer who only trains women. <laughs> he managed to hijack the Joe Suarez show, which is the biggest chat show in South America. Think Parkinson or for the younger listeners, Graham Norton, that style of things. He managed to get on this as a live show, tell his football story, but then afterwards, uh, you know, he was asked, what are you doing now? And he said, I'm a personal trainer. And he pulled a woman down from the audience that he was training that was strategically positioned there who took off her dress and was in a dental floss bikini. And he managed to talk through all the work that he'd done on this woman. And that was his way of marketing himself. And Louis made the point. Kaiser used to say to us a lot, marketing, marketing. Rob, is your story the one that you found? Do you feel that you guys have done justice to it over the five years? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, I've told this story, I don't know how many times now, to mates, to friends, to families, to, you know, to whoever else at dinner parties. And a good friend of mine who probably heard this story more times than he wanted to came to see the premiere over in the Tribeca Film Festival. And he said, look, I've heard that story a lot of times out of your mouth, but that is easily the best version of it. So, yeah, very happy. Tom, uh, final question. Uh, When's it out? Where can we see it? So the film is out on the 26th, and it's going to be in View Cinemas and Independent Cinemas here in the UK and Ireland. And also we have a book that Rob Smythe uh, wrote. And the reason for that is exactly what we've discussed here. The story was so, so deep that we felt there was so much on the cutting room floor that we, we wanted to tell the rest of the story and uh, yeah we're really really happy with both that was Ian McIntosh talking to Tom Markham Rob Fulham and Louis Miles as Dr Tom was saying the film Kaiser the greatest footballer never to play football is released this Friday and the book of the same name by Rob Smythe is out now And if you're in London and fancy listening to some more behind-the-scenes tales about Carlos Kaiser and the making of the documentary, then Louis Miles is giving extra special director's Q&A sessions at View Westfield White City on Thursday the 26th of July at 7pm and at View Piccadilly Apollo on Friday the 27th of July at 6.30pm. Find out more and book your tickets at kaiserthefilm.co.uk. That's kaiser, K-A-I-S-E-R, thefilm.co.uk. 